This is Positively Farming Media. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. This week, we're back to preserving our harvest. This episode, we'll talk about ways to dehydrate your fruits and veggies and how to use them when you're ready. The basics of cold storage, including temperature, light, and humidity requirements. And we'll take a little bit of a look at fermenting your garden goodness and whether or not that's a viable way to actually store produce or if it's just good for our gut health. I'll respond to a comment that I got on TikTok about pressure canning. Spoiler alert, opinions are not backed by science. And in the DRL, we're talking hydroponic lettuce, succession planting, and doing hard things. Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen. I started gardening years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard, then moved to a five-acre lot outside city limits and expanded that garden to half an acre. What started as a way to provide for my family turned into a love for digging in the dirt and providing for others. Slowly, my husband and I built our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm through lots of trial and error and successes and failures. Eventually, I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, and along the way, I discovered there is power in food. So I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. This podcast is all about helping you become a better gardener and a better eater. Whether you're a seasoned gardener or have never grown a thing in your life, I want to give you the knowledge you need to get the biggest and best harvest you can. So settle in, grab that garden journal, and get ready to just grow something. So... Happy fall, you guys. I am so excited for fall weather. I'm excited for fall gardening. I'm excited for fall food. Uh, We had sort of a false fall here. We had like a week where it was really fall-like, and then all of a sudden we were back up into the upper 90s, and we even hit 100 degrees at one point. Um, And now we are, oh, mid-70s-ish during the day and dropping down into the low 50s at night, and I am absolutely here for it. I'm very sorry to all of my southern gardeners because I know this means absolutely nothing to you right now. I know you are still getting the continued heat and I'm hoping that maybe it's starting to break for you a little bit and this is the time of the season when you can get out there and get some quick crops in that like a little bit of the heat but maybe it was too hot for early on so say some quick bush green beans or something um, before you can maybe start planting some of your, um, your root vegetables that will do better as it starts to cool off. And for my northern gardeners, I am so sorry for those of you who have already seen your first frost. I I saw some of your posts out there. I cannot even. I have always maintained that I will never live anywhere further north than where I do. It's not that I don't enjoy some nice winter weather and I you know, like a good snowfall. Uh, but yeah, the end of September, that is just way too early for me for a frost. So hopefully you guys have all of your season extension stuff ready to go and you've got your frost cloths and everything else and you can sort of extend your season just a little bit. So let's jump into the DRL. What am I doing? Right now, I'm actually preparing for our first sort of adventures in hydroponics. Um, I was already thinking about doing some hydroponic lettuce over the winter by utilizing my flood table that I have in my seed starting area. Um, I usually was using that for microgreens, um, but I thought that I would start to do some hydroponic lettuce in that, that flood table instead. 
Well, at the same time that I was thinking about this, we were actually gifted a whole setup essentially for hydroponics. And it's one of the versions where you have uh, the pot in pot sort of system and the water runs through the bottoms of the pots and feeds the, the plants that way. So now I'm gonna have a two-pronged approach. I'm still gonna do the original idea that I had for doing it in the basement in the, um, in the seed starting room. But then I'm also going to take this new larger setup and I'm gonna set it up in my greenhouse. Now, the greenhouse isn't really temperature controlled per se. Um, we do have that wood burning furnace that we installed at the very, very end of last um, season. Uh, that we can use to go ahead and keep the temperatures up in the overnight hours. Then obviously during the day when the sun is out, it heats up quite quickly in there due to the plastic. So I'm thinking that I can sort of heat the water and that will keep the root zone warm. And then if I can keep the air temperature above freezing in the overnights, the daytime temperatures should be just fine, even in the middle of the winter. And I should be able to continue to grow these hydroponic lettuces. This is 100% experimental. Um, the other thing that I've been trying to track down is figure out what I could use for nutrients because obviously as an organic gardener, I don't want to use um, any chemical type fertilizers in the water. So lo and behold, I checked with the folks over at Elm Dirt about using their plant juice in the hydroponic water and they said, yes, it would absolutely work. And they gave me the ratio that they recommend. And so that's what I'm going to be trying. So I'll be doing that in both of those setups. So um, I'm not quite there to the point yet where I'm going to be set up because there's still, of course, loads of things to be doing in the fall garden. And I'm not in too much of a rush. So I'm going to take my time, do a little bit more research, get it set up. But um, but yeah, that's kind of in the back of my head right now. So that's that's sort of what I'm working towards. So what am I reading? I am reading um, the first book by Meg McAndrews Cowden called Plant, Grow, Harvest, and Repeat. Um, if you don't know who Meg is, she is the founder of the Instagram page Seed to Fork, or the Instagram account, I should say, Seed to Fork. She's also got a website. Um, if you go out on Instagram and you go and look at her stuff, she has really, really beautiful pictures of everything that they grow out there. This book is no exception. There are beautiful photos in here. But the reason I picked it up is because, you know, as I have grown as a gardener and as a, a market farmer, and learned to plan my garden in ways that are a little bit less traditional. Um, I have come to do a lot of succession planting and also sort of spacing my plantings out throughout the season. So I'm no longer in this huge rush at the very beginning of May to get in all of my tomatoes and all of my peppers and all of my warm weather stuff all like in one you know, fell swoop and then just sit back and wait. It's less stressful to me to be able to sort of put those things out in stages and then also use succession planting to keep that harvest going. This book talks all about that. And so Meg goes into her way of doing this and how she has sort of evolved her way of planting to match what the natural systems around us do. So I always appreciate a different perspective um, of somebody who is doing things that maybe are similar to me, but who have honed it maybe differently than I have. And so, so far I'm enjoying it. I'm not too far into it, but I mean, the pictures it, themselves 
um, are are worth just having this book because they're you know Meg does some beautiful photography in here, um, and it goes into flowers and it goes into all kinds of different things. So um, definitely a book that I would recommend. And then what am I listening to? I have uh, started listening to the We Can Do Hard Things podcast. This is hosted by Glennon Doyle. She is the author of Untamed. You may have heard that book. It kind of exploded during um, the beginning of uh, the lockdown period of pandemic. Um, it is co-hosted by her wife, Abby Wambach, and her sister, Amanda Doyle. And basically, it just talks about the daily battles of life, you know, illness, caring for children or aging parents, marriage, divorce, all these things. It's just a raw look at life in general and, you know, some interesting conversations that can maybe help us realize that we are all battling something, all of us, no matter what, even if we don't show it. And it's not always heavy. There is actually a lot of fun in every one of those episodes. There's some really, you know, laugh out loud moments. So it's a good listen. It's, it's one that I would recommend. So instead of the question of the week this week, I'm going to talk about a comment that was made on one of my videos over on TikTok. Yes, I'm on TikTok. Um, if you are not on TikTok, let me tell you, it actually is more than just a bunch of silly dances. It really actually kind of has become a really good place for learning about different topics and for getting news in a different way, in addition to being entertainment. So, um, you know, I had been posting a couple of videos over there about all the topics that we've been talking about here this past month. And specifically, I did a couple of videos about pressure canning and trying to teach people, hey, it's not something to be scared of. You can do this and this is how. Well, I had somebody comment on one of my videos saying that, you know, well, you can water bath non-acidic foods for three hours and they'll be perfectly safe to use or something to that effect. Uh, no, no, you can't, or at least you shouldn't. And what I said in that video was, it's not my job to police people and tell them what they can and cannot do with their own food and their own food preservation um, for themselves and their family. But I will talk about, you know, the reason why we pressure can things. And, you know, we discussed that here, episode 111, we talked about pressure canning and why we do it. But in this response that I put out there, I addressed something that I don't think I addressed in this original episode that we did over here on the podcast. And that is botulism, okay? Yes, botulism is the main reason why we do not use a water bath canner to can low acid foods. The reason for this is because we are concerned about the botulinum toxin, right? We don't care about the bacteria itself necessarily. We actually consume that bacteria fairly frequently. It it's, exists in our soil. It's on our fresh foods. We eat it all the time. What we're concerned about is the toxin that is produced by the bacteria, its spores, when it reproduces, okay? So we talked about, we did talk about in that episode, what the kind of ideal circumstances are for that bacteria to reproduce, right? A specific temperature range, um, a specific moisture level, the absence of acid, so low acid foods or anything that doesn't have enough sugar, um, and then the absence of air, right? Those low oxygen or anaerobic 
anaerobic environments. And our canned foods present that perfect environment for those bacteria to begin to reproduce. You know, think about that jar of green beans sitting on your counter. It's a wet environment, it's low acid, it's at room temperature, and it's a low oxygen environment. It is the perfect breeding ground for these bacteria. When you boil something, you can kill botulism. You can kill the botulinum toxin, but that doesn't kill the bacteria that cause the toxin, okay? So the boiling point of water is 212 degrees Fahrenheit. That will kill the botulinum toxin, but it will not kill the bacteria. So if you take a low acid food and you boil it, and I don't care if you boil it for an hour or three hours or 24 hours, okay? It can never get above 212 degrees Fahrenheit. It's not possible. So what you've done is you've created the perfect breeding ground for those bacteria. You might have killed any existing toxins that were already on that food by boiling it, sure. But you now, once you are done boiling it and you put it away to store it, it's now at room temperature. It's a wet, low acid, low oxygen environment, and those bacteria are just ready to reproduce. You need an environment that gets above 240 degrees Fahrenheit to kill off the actual bacteria. Then you're safe, right? Those bacteria are no longer there to be able to reproduce and create that toxin. And a pressure canner is how you do that. Canning under pressure allows the temperature inside the canner to get above 240 degrees Fahrenheit and therefore it kills off the bacteria. Now, rebel canning is perfectly fine when you're the one making the choice for you and your family and you've had years of experience in canning. If you choose to take that risk, that's on you. My problem with the comment that was made was that this person is basically telling somebody who is new to canning that it's okay to water bath can a low acid food if you just boil the snot out of it for three hours. And that to me is just irresponsible and could make somebody sick. So for all of you, my gardening friends, please, please, please be safe when you're canning. And don't pass on erroneous information to people who are new at this. Okay. Okay. All right. So speaking of safe preserving, let's dig into cold storage and dehydrating, and then we'll learn a little bit about fermenting. Okay. So let's start with cold storage. What is it? What do we mean when we say cold storage other than the refrigerator? And what can we store short-term and long-term without refrigeration? Cold storage is a really good way to store root veggies and some of our other sort of cooler season crops. So carrots, onions, garlic, potatoes, turnips, sweet potatoes, beets, cabbage. These are all really good candidates for cold storage. Now, obviously, for short-term storage, you can just have them sort of at room temperature um, in your kitchen. They're not going to last very long. Um, you could put them into the refrigerator for a little bit longer storage. But again, part of this is we're trying to find places that don't require us to be using a lot of energy or a lot of space in our refrigerator. So we're talking long-term cold storage here, right? What you want to do is you want to find an area within your house that is dry and dark. Okay, a basement, if you have a dry basement, a garage, a shed that's got plenty of ventilation. But 
you know, saying, okay, we'll find a cool, dry, dark area, that leaves a lot of wiggle room, right? We want to know what that proper temperature and humidity level is based on the crop that we're storing because it will vary, okay? For example, winter squashes do best at a temperature range of between 50 and 55 Fahrenheit with a relative humidity of 50 to 70%. But sweet potatoes like it just a little bit warmer, 55 to 60 Fahrenheit, but they also like a higher level of humidity, closer to 85 or 90%. And then cabbage really likes it much colder. I mean, just above freezing at about 32 Fahrenheit, but it likes 90% humidity. So, you know, finding information about what it is that you're trying to store and then do one of two things. Either try to find a happy medium what they can all sort of live with, or find a separate area for any of your divas, you know, like carrots, who like it at a very oddly specific 41 degrees Fahrenheit and pretty much 100% humidity. Um, or apples, who really should be stored by themselves. More on that in a minute. So what I have found as far as cold storage is that a temperature range around 35 to 45 Fahrenheit is good. It's above freezing, um, but it's not so warm that any of my more sensitive ones are going to get moldy too quickly. And around 75% humidity seems to be kind of that sweet spot that most of my long-term storage veggies can tolerate and still be happy. Now, some of them are going to last longer at this temperature and humidity range than some of the other ones will, but I kind of know that and I plan accordingly. I use up the ones that are going to go bad faster. I use those first and then I leave the other ones, you know, towards the end of the season. There are some best practices though that you want to follow when you are getting ready to prep these things for cold storage. Your, your root veggies specifically, your carrots and your turnips and your beets, you want to go ahead and remove the tops and the roots, but you do not want to wash them. You do, however, want to cure them, which really means drying with them with some heat and humidity for a certain period of time, um, depending on the crop, and then putting them into storage. A good way to store these root veggies, pack them in boxes with some newspaper in between the layers, or you can bury them in sand or in sawdust. Just make sure that you're looking up the specific way to cure those vegetables. Potatoes that are harvested in the spring need a little bit of a different treatment than those that are harvested like in the late summer or the early fall. This is why we use our earliest potatoes as new potatoes, and then the late potatoes are cured for long-term storage. And the way that you cure an Irish potato is different than how you cure a sweet potato, which is also different from how you cure a winter squash. So look up each one of these things and take some notes and cure them appropriately before you store them. Now, things like apples and pears, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, potatoes, those can all be stored the same way that you store your root veggies, but they need a little bit more air circulation. So instead of like burying them in sand or sawdust um, or putting them in layers of newspaper, you can actually wrap the fruits individually in the newspapers and layer them that way. 
And then you can put the cabbages or the Brussels sprouts into buckets or bags on top of some moist soil. And that will kind of help keep the humidity up, but still allow the air to circulate. You leave some space around them. Onions and garlic can be braided, or you can store them in mesh bags that are hung up or put them in shallow boxes or baskets. Uh, just so long as there's some air circulation. Now, I mentioned apples, then uh, they should be by themselves. The reason that you store apples by themselves is because the ethylene gas that they emit can also cause your other stuff to become overripe very quickly. And apples can also absorb flavors from the other things that are around them. So if you have your apples stored near your cabbage, you very well may end up with some funky cabbage tasting apples, and nobody wants that. That's gross. Sweet potatoes and winter squashes, and that includes pumpkins, they all seem to like a slightly warmer temperature. Again, 50 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit, and they want to be cured. They need to be cured um, before you store them in order for them to have that longer-term storage life. Air circulation here is key, so don't pile them up too much. And again, with all of these, you do not want to wash them before you store them. You want to knock the dirt off, but don't use any water to clean them until just before you are ready to use them. That is going to extend their life. Now, the alternative to this type of cold storage is to actually just leave them in the ground. Leave them in the ground. Now, obviously not your ones above ground, uh, but your carrots and your, and your beets and your root crops. Leave those in the ground basically until the ground freezes. Just cover it with hay or straw, and then you can dig them out as needed. You can also extend the season with some cold frames um, or row covers in addition to that hay or the straw to keep that soil warmer so that you have a longer harvest period. They're not going to continue growing. They're just going to sit there. Now, you can also do this with cabbages and such, but they are going to be above the soil, obviously. So you are going to need to do a little bit more when it comes to keeping them warmer, protecting them from those hard freezes. But this is a really great way to save yourself some storage room inside and also to concentrate the sugars in some of those um, those root vegetables as well because the colder they you know they get those cold snaps it intensifies those sugars a little bit some of the sweetest carrots you will ever taste are those sort of winter carrots that are getting pulled out of that really really cold ground oh they are so good but no matter how you're storing these things you do want to make sure that you're checking on them regularly and pulling out any of them that are starting to get soft or starting to decay because if you leave them in there together that's just going to spread to the other ones and then you're very quickly going to have a kind of nasty mess on your hands. So no matter where you're storing them or how you're storing them, make sure that you're checking on them regularly. Okay, so another really great way to preserve your harvest is through dehydrating. Now you can either do this using a very basic dehydrator. The first one that I bought I think was about 30 bucks and it was just one of those round circular ones with the stackable trays. Um, you can get an upgraded version. I have since moved to a nine drawer or a nine tray version. Um, there's also those heavy duty premium ones, that Excalibur brand, and there's a couple of other premium versions. I haven't quite gotten to that stage yet. Um, I do do a lot of dehydrating, but I don't think I quite need one that is that robust yet, but we'll see. You can also just use your own home oven. 
Um, set the temperature to around 140 degrees if you can get it to that point. Um, some of them don't quite get that low, so it might be a little bit tricky. You may have to turn it on and then shut it off and keep an eye on the temperature. The other problem is because the ovens are so big, they're not necessarily the most efficient dryers on the block, but they can save you, you know, the trouble of buying an extra appliance if you just want to get some quick drying done. Um, but the little electric dehydrators, they're really efficient. They have fans. They have elements to really quickly and efficiently dry your food. It basically means there's very little spoilage and you still get the really good flavor out of them. I like to stick around 135 to 140 degrees Fahrenheit just because that preserves the nutrients. Anything higher than that, then you're almost starting to cook it while you're drying it and then you start to lose not only some of the nutrients but some of the flavor. Um, but follow the directions you know, for the recipe that you're using. Um, most electric dehydrators will come with a temperature gauge and some sort of adjustment, and this can help you speed up or slow down the drying time depending on what it is that you're processing. So you can dehydrate pretty much anything. I mean, you you know, your herbs, your spices, your fruits and vegetables, um, meats, you know, nuts, seeds, sprouted grains, herbs, you can make granola. It's pretty much all fair game. Just make sure that you're following some guidance. You know, when you're first starting out at this, there are tons and tons of recipes out there um, that will give you step-by-step -step instructions. It'll tell you how long. It'll tell you what temperature. If you buy a food dehydrator, a lot of the time they will come with a booklet that has all kinds of different recipes in there. For me, dehydrating, not only is it versatile because... I can make fruit chips, I can do, you know, sun-dried tomatoes, I can make soup mixes, but also it's a really good way to store your food for the long term without relying on refrigeration. I mean, look, I live in a rural area. It, there are very good chances of power outages out here. Um, it's also super convenient to have things that are dried and they don't take up as much space as they do when they are their full-size components. So, you know, you can save that freezer or refrigerator space for other things. The basics of dehydrating. Usually what you really want to make sure that you are preserving these foods as quickly after harvest as possible. I mean, that goes with just about everything, but when you're dehydrating, I think it makes a little bit more of a difference too because they're going to tend to lose those nutrients and their flavor fairly quickly after they're harvested, and then you're drying them, which is going to further sort of degrade some of that. So the sooner you can start the dehydration process, the better. Some things you're going to want to treat before you start to dry them, things like, you know, apples and pears and potatoes, they will start to turn color. They'll get this like brownish grayish color after they start drying. So if you quickly soak them in some lemon juice water um, before you dry them, that's going to keep them from discoloring, but it's not going to affect the flavor at all. You won't get, you won't taste that lemon. Some items are better blanched before drying, just like in canning. It's going to preserve the flavor and the nutrients. Again, I like steaming as a blanch for dehydrating. Things like asparagus, broccoli, carrots, um, green beans, corn, those types of things, uh, you want to probably blanch before you dry them. Also, kale, if you're going to use it as cooked kale. But if you're doing kale chips, I just rub the kale really good and uh, before putting it in there. Um, that, that does just fine for the texture. Um, really, one of the things that you want to pay attention to is making sure that you are dehydrating in manageable pieces. The bigger a piece is that you're going to dehydrate, the longer it's going to take to dry. And sometimes, if you're not careful, 
that center part may not get completely dried out and that can cause it to, to spoil while it's in storage and you definitely do not want that. So slice them into manageable size pieces, layer them evenly onto your trays, follow the instructions for the time and the temperature with your dehydrator or the recipe that you're using for your oven. Your drying time is really going to vary and I mean widely. This is not only going to depend on the temperature at which you are dehydrating, but it's also going to depend on your climate. I live in a very humid area. If I am trying to dehydrate things in the middle of the summer when the humidity is very, very high, it's going to take them longer than it would say now when the humidity level starts to drop. For instance, if you're doing fruits, you know, apples, bananas, peaches, nectarines, whatever, the drying time can be as short as six hours or as long as 16 hours. When you start getting into things like grapes or figs or pears, it can be anywhere from 20 hours to 36 hours. So keep in mind that vegetables are going to dry more quickly than your fruits, but they can also spoil more quickly. And I think in most instances, this is because, like we talked about in some of the canning episodes, that fruit have a higher acidity level, therefore they are less prone to spoilage. So your vegetables aren't going to take nearly as long to dry as your fruits. So depending on the temperature, most veggies are going to be done within 4 to 10 hours or so. Um, again, this is going to depend on the vegetable and the size that you slice your pieces into. So try to follow the instructions pretty closely the first few times you do this until you get the hang of it. And then once they're dry, you're going to store them in clean, dry jars. Okay, mason jars are perfect. Or you can put them into silicone bags or containers that have really tight fitting lids. Now, how can you test to see whether or not these are dry enough for storage. The easiest way to do this is once you think your stuff is dry, go ahead and take a handful of them and throw them into a plastic Ziploc baggie. Okay, close it up, shake it around a little bit, and let it sit. If you see moisture in there, guess what? It's not done. You need to throw it back in the dehydrator and let it continue to go. Keep doing this until you get no moisture at all when you shake that bag around. You can also save desiccant packages. Um, and that way, you know, things like fruit chips that we, I know, take moisture on really easily, especially in our humid area, you can store them with the desiccant packets in there to make sure that they don't start to take on some of that outside moisture. But just keep the tight-fitting lids on there and they should be good. So how do we use our dehydrated goodness? I mean, other than the dried herbs and the garlic. I mean, we all pretty much know how to use those, right? But what about the other stuff that's coming out of our garden? Um, for instance, reconstitute dried diced onions, and you can use them in just about any cooking recipe that's calling for onions. You can also use them while they're still dried for homemade onion dip or for onion soup mix. Dehydrated tomato slices seasoned with some salt, some oregano, some basil, or some garlic. Um, that tastes like a little tasty pizza snack. I'm just making some of those today. I am dehydrating them, and I season them with some salt and oregano and a little bit of garlic powder. They'll be stored at room temperature, and I can just snack on them, and they really do taste like a slice of pizza. You can also dehydrate just plain tomatoes and then grind them into a powder. That's also what I'm doing this afternoon. Um, you can use this powder to add flavor to your soups and your stews, but for me, I am going to use it um, as a tomato paste. I was thinking I was going to cook down and can a bunch of tomato paste to be using in the wintertime, but 
you know, we don't ever really go through a whole little jar of it at one time. I usually only need like one or two tablespoons. So I figured I would dry the tomatoes instead, grind them into a powder, and then when I need some tomato paste, I will just reconstitute the one or two tablespoons that I need and go from there. And then, you know, it's obviously, it's a more concentrated um, way to store it. And so I'll need less space. Um, anything that goes into soups and stews can be reconstituted either prior to adding it or they can be allowed to rehydrate during the cooking process. So peppers, carrots, potatoes, onions, celery, all those things can be dehydrated and stored dry and then tossed into your soups and allowed to rehydrate while you're cooking the soup. You can also use these things to make your own instant soup mix. Just add boiling water and there you go. There are tons of recipes for using dehydrated foods. They're on the internet. They, Like I said, they should come with your dehydrator. But once again, after you've got them dehydrated, you do want to continue to check frequently for moisture issues and spoilage. Anytime you are storing food at room temperature, you want to make sure that you are constantly checking for spoilage. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I've been using Elm Dirt's plant juice in my greenhouse and my raised beds all season long and I can tell you the results have been impressive. My plants have been more drought tolerant, which has been super important this year. They've resisted disease better, they've handled stress more readily, and I've even done side-by-side -side comparisons and can absolutely see the difference in the health of the plants. Elm Dirt is offering Just Grow Something Gardening friends a little something special to get you started in using their products. Go to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash dirt and use the code JUSTGROW at checkout to get a free bottle of their bloom juice with any purchase. I promise you will be super happy with the results. That's justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash dirt and use code JUSTGROW at checkout for a free bottle of bloom juice with any purchase from Elm Dirt. All right, so we are going to dig into a topic that is new to me, and this is fermenting, okay? So fermented foods are foods or beverages that have undergone controlled microbial growth and fermentation, right? So fermentation is an anaerobic process. The microorganisms like yeast and bacteria will break down different food components, usually sugars, into other products like acids or gases or alcohol. This process is actually what gives fermented foods their unique taste, their flavor, their appearance, right? Think about cultured yogurts, um, wine, beer, kimchi, sauerkraut. They all have these very sort of distinctive flavors about them, and that is because they have been fermented. There are a lot of health benefits that have been associated with fermented foods, and that is why they have really started to rise in popularity over the last few years. Um, there's a lot of talk about reduced risks of cardiovascular diseases, um, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, inflammation, all of those things being brought down by eating more fermented foods. 
They have also been linked to better weight management and better mood and brain activity based on the benefits that they have for our gut biota and our gut health. If we think, though, about where fermenting came from, it really was just another way to store food, right? Foods historically were valued for their improved shelf life, not just for their unique taste and all the health benefits. So when it comes to food safety, fermented vegetables can actually be safer than raw vegetables because that very process of fermentation actually kills the harmful bacteria in the foods by using the bacteria that's in the foods. So obviously, having said that, you need to keep basic food safety practices still need to be followed while you're fermenting foods. And also keep in mind that the bigger concern is contamination after the veggies have been fermented. So just make sure when you're handling your jars and everything, you have clean hands and it doesn't come in contact with raw meat or anything else like that, right? This is not a fail-safe way to store your food. But it is a really good way to store your food to improve the shelf life and also, you know, improve the health benefits maybe of the food. Things like cabbage, beets, radishes, turnips, carrots, those are sort of the beginner's um, fermenting foods because the bacteria that's living on the surface of those foods already is doing the fermenting for us. We don't have to add anything to it in order to get it to start fermenting. And then once we get into these, you know, easy ones and we sort of figure out what we're doing with those, then we can jump into recipes that maybe involve inoculating the foods with a bacteria like, you know, lactobacillus that can jumpstart the fermentation process. I say that I'm new to fermenting, but I actually do make my own homemade yogurt with milk from our local dairy. And how I do that is by inoculating that milk with the lactobacillus cultures from the previous batch of yogurt. So I'm inoculating it and then I'm bringing it to a certain temperature and that allows it to ferment and I end up with yogurt. Now I should say there is a little bit of a difference between pickling, like how we pickle with vinegar versus fermenting, which could be sort of considered pickling. You can do pickles through fermentation But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're pickling everything when you're fermenting. So things can be pickled with an acidic vinegar brine, or they can be pickled using a salty brine without the vinegar, and then it's fermenting. During fermentation, this food is naturally going to develop a sort of sour flavor because of the chemical reactions that are going on. So even though both vinegar pickles and fermented pickles may taste vinegary, one is because of the added acid of the vinegar and the other one is because of the natural fermentation. So there is a difference there. So the other thing that I found when researching this was that it seems that fermented vegetables will last for a year or more um, in a good cold storage location, but fermented fruits should be consumed within just a few weeks. And I guess the reason is um, fruit has a lot of natural sugars, which can add to or speed up spoilage and also helps it turn into alcohol. So if that's your intention, that's one thing. But if it's not, you might have a very alcoholic surprise when you go to open your fermented fruits. So um, a lot of these beginner recipes are definitely focused towards fermenting vegetables. So the basics of fermenting is you choose your vegetable of choice and 
you're going to make a fermentation brine. The basic brine is one tablespoon of salt per cup of water. Now you should be using natural non-iodized salt and chlorine-free water. So the salt is going to prevent the mold organisms from growing, and it also produces the beneficial bacteria that do the fermenting work, which is why you want to use something like sea salt, Himalayan salt, pickling salt, and most kosher salts. You want to avoid iodized salt and any salts that have anti-caking agents. And so you can find this actually in table salt and in some kosher salts. So just make sure that you are reading the packaging label when you use kosher salts. You can also use whey or starter culture. Um, but, you know, again, just follow the recipe of whatever it is that, that you're doing. Um, salt is a good beginner brine, right? So essentially, you're just going to clean and chop up your veggies that you want to ferment. Depending on the vegetable, you can also leave them whole. You want to stir together the water and the salt until the salt is dissolved, and this is now your brine. So you want to use mason jars typically are used for this. Obviously, the old school way is to use a, a crock, a fermenting crock. But, you know, a mason jar is good. Layer the vegetables and any of the herbs or seasonings that you are going to use in the jar and pack it in as tightly as you can and then you pour the brine over top of them and leave about an inch or two of headspace. You know, from what I've seen, seasonings for some of these things, garlic, ginger, bay leaves, dill, fresh thyme, red pepper flakes, these are all really good herb and seasoning ideas that you can put into your fermentation. The big thing is to make sure that the vegetables are submerged in the brine the entire time. Anything that's exposed to the air is going to rot. So they sell these fermentation weights that you can use. Some of them are glass. Um, some of them I think are ceramic maybe, or maybe it's acrylic. I don't know. Either way, you put them in down in your mason jar and it's going to weigh down your vegetables to keep them from floating to the surface and keep them submerged underneath the brine. So if you're using a mason jar, at this point you just tighten the lid a little bit to keep any oxygen from getting in, but it's still going to be loose enough to let the carbon dioxide get out. You don't want to crank it down too tight because obviously the pressure can build up and it can cause that jar to explode if the lid is too tight and none of that carbon dioxide can escape. So this is why fermentation crocks have water seals which is where sort of modern, you know, fermentation comes into play, you can buy these inexpensive airlocks that will fit special mason jar lids that are used for fermenting. And that way you can just sort of set it and forget it. You don't have to worry about whether or not it's too tight or too loose and, you know, you're either spoiling it or it's going to explode because, you know, we don't want to explode things while we're canning. We certainly don't want to explode things while we're fermenting either. Once you get it all set up, you're going to tuck those jars into a cool, dark place. <laughs> There's that, that phrase again. Um, in this instance, the ideal temperature is, you know, around 65 to 70 degrees, okay? In a cupboard or in a pantry. You don't want them in direct sunlight. Um, you know, room temperature, okay? That's, that's what we're talking about. So you put them in your cupboard in, in your kitchen and call it a day. You should see bubbles in the liquid as the lactic acid bacteria start to do their work. The fermentation process itself could take as little as three days and as long as six months, depending on what it is that you're fermenting. And 
what the flavor is that you're looking for and the temperature in your house. The cooler it is, the slower the fermentation process is going to be. The warmer it is, the faster it's going to happen. So as we're first starting out doing this, and I say we because I haven't done this before, the recommendations that I've seen are to open the jar and sort of do a taste test along the way to see if you like what it tastes like. And if it, you know, you want it a little bit more sour, then great. You let it sit and ferment for a little bit longer. So here's the thing. People who ferment foods mainly just for their health benefits will often just store them in the refrigerator when this process is done. But if we're looking to use this as a preservation method, that sort of defeats the purpose, right? So how should we properly store these fermented foods once they're ready? Well, in this instance, we go back to cold storage. So once it's to the point that you want it to be, then you transfer your ferment to cold storage. It's between 32 and 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Remember, temperature affects the fermentation process, right? The warmer our home is, the faster the food is going to ferment. The same thing goes for the storage once the ferment is complete. So the cold is going to slow down the fermentation process, but it's not going to stop it completely. It is going to continue to ferment while it's in storage, but it's going to be at a much slower pace. So we're going to be able to keep our fermentations for a while in that cold storage. This is why the colder the location, the better. Now, what I've read is you can actually lengthen this storage life a little bit by putting them in cold storage just a little bit early. Right, Since they're going to continue to ferment slowly while they're sitting there, then you could keep them from getting too sour or too soft by storing them just a little bit early. So if you have several jars of something and you're wanting to use one of them sooner rather than later, but the other ones you want to keep for the next six months, then maybe put three of them away early and let them to continue to slowly ferment and let one jar go all the way to where you want it to be before putting it in the cold storage. Just make sure you're marking it properly. The one thing that you do really want to do, though, is to keep an eye on those brine levels. You may need to push down those veggies or add a little bit of brine to keep everything below the brine in order to be able to avoid mold. So once you put something in storage, remember, we're always keeping an eye out for spoilage. And then another note was to possibly consider a higher salt ratio. Um, it should help the ferments to store for longer, but keep in mind it's also going to make them taste a little bit saltier too. So, you know, this is something that you can play with. It seems like a lot of these recommendations are a little loosey-goosey when it comes to fermentation. So long as you're keeping things under the brine, then it's all generally regarded as being safe. You just have to keep an eye out for, you know, the mold and stuff, and, and your temperature seems to be the key component here. Everything else seems to be, well, you can play with it a little bit. So I'm going to play with it a little bit. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to get, um, you know, a couple of those, the little airlock things and a couple of the special lids. I had plenty of mason jars. And I am going to try fermenting some things this fall. Now, the first thing I'm going to do, I think, is some traditional sauerkraut because that is my husband's absolute favorite. And we'll see how it goes. But I also think that I'm going to try a few other things and be able to put them um, downstairs in some cold storage and, uh, and maybe find, you know, a new way to be able to preserve some of that garden goodness. And as always, I will keep an eye on items for spoilage as I go along. All right, my gardening friends, I hope that you have gotten a ton of inspiration for preserving your harvest over the past month's worth of episodes. 
And maybe it very well has you thinking about expanding your garden for next year because honestly, the only thing that is better than looking down on your plate and seeing something you grew with your own two hands is looking down on your plate in the middle of winter and seeing something that you grew and being able to enjoy it well after it has been harvested. And of course, anytime we can keep the power of food in our own hands, the better off we are for sure. So until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden and we'll talk again soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, head on over to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com for all the episodes, show notes, blog posts, discount codes, and more. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. You can also head to Facebook and join a community of other gardeners asking questions and sharing their experiences in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. And if you want to support this show even further, head to Patreon.com slash JustGrowSomething to find out how. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning, keep growing, and we'll talk again soon. You know, or you can store them in mesh bags that are hang up, um, hang up, that are hang up. They have a hang up. <laughs> Since they're so big, they're not quite as efficient as drying. Um, that None of that made any sense. I use a coffee grinder. Uh, mm, no, I don't. I don't use a coffee grinder anymore. Um, for homemade onion dip or onion, uh, onion soup dip. Mm, wow, I am having a problem talking. <laughs> Anti-caking agents, which you will often sometimes... Often sometimes? No. If you get lots of great information from this podcast and would like to support it monetarily, you can do that by becoming a patron for as little as $2 a month over on Patreon. I'd like to thank my patrons for supporting this and every episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. And if you'd like to join them, go to patreon.com slash justgrowsomething. The link is in the show notes.